0: Hello, smokers, tokers, dopers, and dropouts. It's me, the god of ganja, Doobie Ruby (laughs) (laughs) McGangister. Bryce and Liz can't do the cold open today. They're on a little trip with Mary Jane's crazy brother, Delta Eight, and they're too busy blowing tea to talk to you. They told me to tell you the episode today is a sticky, icky skunk fest for the true herb fans only. So pop out of that pre roll. (laughs) Pop out of it. Pop out of it, honey. I know. Honey, I know. So pop out that pre-roll light up that gravity bong inhale that tie stick and smoke up that knife head ladies and gentlemen prepare to smoke on that true ganjanon
1: Ladies and gentlemen, psych! I would never smoke weed ever again. I would rather die publicly in a horrible way. I'd rather be on a little, I'd be on a fucking plane, right? And there's guys get up and like, we're going to take this thing over. We're crashing this into Mm. the Pentagon. And I'd be like, I'd rather do this than smoke weed. That's what I'd tell the hijackers. Hello, my name is Brace Belden.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Liz. Also not smoking weed. She has an unlit dube in the
1: corner <laughs> of her mouth
2: that kind of just is like constantly. stuck to her.
1: Yeah, like a kind of 50s cigarette style Ew. that just like bobs up and down when she talks. Ew. So it's both dry and wet. I can
2: like feel that. You can. Yeah, I it's don't like it. A little like bit, it.
1: little flakes are getting in your mouth. Yeah, gross. We're of course joined with the doubly stone by the doubly stoned young Chomsky. And then thank you. Doobie Ruby McAllister for letting <laughs> some of your uh, your 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 stoned voice work. You
0: smoke weed? I'm actually starting to smoke weed again. Mm. I've decided this fall I'm going to smoke weed twice a week. Are you scheduling it? <laughs> yeah, because I hate weed, mm. but I think I think this fall. What if I, honey? What if I smoke weed twice a week? Read a book.
1: Mm. Why? Well,
0: hello. You, yeah,
1: hello. It's called
0: being an adult. This little yeah. like pumpkin that's
2: spice. Ca- vibe.
0: Yeah, it's like just smoke a little giant, read a book, a great American novel. Mm-hmm. Dreiser?
1: Theodore Dreiser? <laughs>
0: Some sister <curry>. Um
1: <laughs> I will call the cops on you if I see you doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Folks, this is a episode of True Gunjanan, a uh, loose mini series that we are starting. In fact, actually, this show is going to be mostly about weed, the weed industry, no, and what's going not. on it's in not Humboldt. About any
2: of that. It's only, only vaguely about weed too. It's kind of about this episode. Like is Not about weed. It's not at all. I wasn't I interviewing Ruby. She's yeah, just, at our just our studio hanging right out. Now. Sorry, guys. Um, I mean, we could. Ruby, it, how's it going? You How like, are you? Well, she likes weed. She already answered. So oh, okay. You're, I'm. You are a criminal. Or are you a cop?
0: Mm, sort of a that has question. more to do with our episode today.
1: <laughs> uh, folks, we have yet another crazy paranoid author. He's actually, he's, the guy himself is not paranoid, but he's writing about a paranoid subject. We are talking today uh, with Sean Howe, the author of Agents of Chaos, a book about Tom Forsad, who was the founder of... Of High Times Magazine. Now, for people there's like Liz, Ruby, Young Chomsky, that was sort of – it functions as like a Playboy type magazine for yeah. them. They open the centerfolds. They see the crystals on the kind bud. They see <laughs> the purple ganja. They see the green ganja. That's sort of like they're different like, oh, I'm into this race of people. I'm into this race of people. there's a races to them. When mom walks in, we stuff them under the bed real quick. Oh, I can't let her see. I can't let her see. And, of course, the famous bong is the naked woman in real life for these potheads here. The famous curious. bong. <laughs> That's <laughs> a curious way bong. of saying that. This is the last time any of you guys, I want to actually, uh, honest <laughs> question for everyone in the row, Was the last time anyone here used a bong.
0: I don't oh, no. know, but I love how they look. I love how. I, I could love s- how they look. Do you? Wouldn't you want like a gorgeous bong in the middle of this? <laughs> no. room right yeah, the <laughs> I decoration.
2: did so much time on Hate Street in oh, my twenties. Yeah, that I Aww. like cannot see a smoke shot. I get it's like, I go into convulsions.
1: The, I can't see this. Liz shit. had when we were younger. Liz had the <laughs> craziest, you know, SpongeBob, stuff. hundred percent, the square p- pants. Liz had this this thing I've never seen. It was like a it was not a cylindrical style bong. It was a full rectangular <laughs> bong, full just size, life size SpongeBob. You smoked it. out of his nose, yeah, absolutely. and Liz had, would just build these no little way. campfires underneath his well, what would be his crotch if he was a human. And just put some kind bud in there, and just she smoked saltwater bong. That was Liz was sort of famous for. Everyone knows this is fake. It was because it was Squidward. It was Squidward. Liz, of course, with her famous (laughs) life-size Squidward Squidward bong. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, But we have a we have a fantastic interview right now with the uh, author of Agents of Chaos. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the icky, sticky, kush half hour. Please lay down on my chaise. Let me drape a little blanket over you. Put on some, what's the fucking uh, incense that they always have? Nag Champa? Let me put some Champa on, maybe all around And then point a gun at your head and ask if you work for the police. Hello. Today on True and On, we have with us guest Sean Howe, author of Agents, or is it Agents of Chaos? It's Agent of Chaos. It's Agents, plural, of chaos. Uh, the story of Tom Forsad, who is the founder of High Times. Um, Sean is a, well, you were a journalist, but now you're just an author. I feel like you've I'm, been I'm an, just author an author now. for a long time. just a guy. An author. Um and also author of Marvel, The Untold Story, and unless I got that title wrong.
3: Marvel Comics, The Untold Story? Marvel but that's Comics, Untold Story. Yeah. I know. I said it and I panicked. I was like, fuck, I should just look
1: at my... Everyone stupid, knew what you were talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Sean, um, you know, welcome to the show. Thank you for showing up. And let me ask the first question. Do you smoke weed?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I sometimes do. It's too strong now, right? The, you know, the... We did a reading, and they were offering 10 milligram mocktails, which I thought was kind of crazy.
2: Um, Wait, yeah. what does that mean? Neither of us smoke weed, so you have to explain this. Like I'm well, five for, years
3: old. Yeah, for for me, like three milligrams is like, you know, I'm not going to freak out. Okay. And so I don't know how many people got home afterward. I it would have kicked in after they were at the reading. Yeah. Which is kind of a funny.
1: So like afterwards, way to they would have been driving home, and then just just completely swerved off the BQE right
3: mm, I, yeah
1: I actually I, so last night it was I did go up there I went to this reading uh, to Sean's reading and there was an open bar or there was a bar at this bookstore and I said oh well how funky maybe a I'll order myself a, 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 a funky little mocktail and I go up there and they, they do indeed have a sign that says mocktails I don't drink because um, unlike many people in your book I conquered my substance abuse issue so I go up there and I, I'm like hey let me get a, a mock pina colada the lady says no problem and then I look at the sign a little closer, and I was like, sorry, does this have weed in it? <laughs> and she's like, yeah, it's all weed You can't drinks.
2: call it a mocktail but have weed in it. It
1: makes a mockery of
3: cocktails <laughs> is what yeah. it does. Yeah. Uh,
1: and I said, can you do it sans weed? And she said yes and gave me a, basically what I to a So you case. hadn't pounded it already. Juice. I hadn't pounded good. it. But I, I, yeah. weed, even beyond everything else, weed is the most – weed drives me crazy. So yeah. if I had actually drank weed at your thing last night – it would
2: have been an incident yeah. You're <laughs> the Drink weed app? is crazy i you know i don't Drink like this feature I don't like we it. have a long uh, long standing bugbear about the uh, crazy crazy weed now because we had like we were on tour we kept having all these faintings in the audience and we were convinced it's because the weed is too strong
1: cuz we investigate in many tokes prior to these faintings it was the um, mocktails it, it was the mocktails <laughs> yeah, the, the infusions So your book, the reason we're not bringing up weed because you look stoned. You look totally normal. Uh, But we are bringing up weed because the subject of your book, Thomas King Forsad, if that is your real name, uh, was the founder of High Times Magazine, which I assume everybody listening knows is the weed magazine. But (laughs) let me ask you this, just to establish who the fuck we're talking about here, who is Thomas Forsad, which is a crazy name to begin with? What's this guy's story? Why'd you write a book about him?
3: Yeah, so um, I, I don't even really know at this point uh, who he was. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I got a lot closer to solving that mystery. Um, his, his real name was Gary Goodson, um, although people didn't know that at the time when he kind of appeared on the scene in 1969 mm-hmm. and insinuated himself into the echelons of the counterculture and uh, radical politics and immediately... Aroused everyone's suspicion. Um, everyone thought he was a, a cop, um, but somehow he he continued to gain power and influence within that world. Um, and throughout the early '70s, he was kind of overseeing the underground newspaper network in America. And after a long, uh, crazy hijinks in the summer of 1972, which ended with him being. Uh, Indicted on a firebombing offense from the Republican National Convention, mm. uh, he went underground, reemerged with High Times magazine in '74, and um, you know the the magazine we all know and love.
1: Mm-hmm. And then he died.
3: And then he seventy d- eight. Right? He died in '78 at the age of thirty three. Um, uh, as someone. As someone said at one of the readings, very sort of suspiciously, mm, that's a lot of Christian symbology.
1: Well, he was. He was. Uh, I was actually sort of surprised to find a, uh, at least in the beginning of his sojourn into the radical media and sort of the radical milieu, uh, a self-identified Christian for a point, to a point.
3: Yeah. I think I think that was mostly as a way to kind of keep um, police off of his, his trail. Um he did a lot of traveling in a uh, big school bus and had kind of an underground uh printing press in the in the back of this, so he would go from town to town and uh you know give out his his newspaper um, and sell drugs on the road and if they got pulled over, he would don like a priest's outfit, and he would lead all the other people in the van uh <laughs> singing hymns mm-hmm. and so they would get. They get off with a warning usually. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. you can
2: sort of pretend to be
3: Jesus people. Right.
2: What brought you to writing about him? Or like how did you, like what was it about him that felt like such, because I was reading the book and it seemed, you know, that whole era is very chaotic, this time between kind of 68 to, you know, when he died in 78, that kind of, let's say that's the decade of the 70s in, in a way. I know other people have said that before, right? But he seems to kind of embody a lot of this very, like, transitional, chaotic energy. And I'm wondering, like, what was it so much about him him that kind of you keyed in on?
3: Yeah, I I think it was kind of the fact that he was kind of weaving in and out of all these different subcultures. Mm. And he seemed to just, you know, insinuate himself everywhere. (laughs) And so he, you know, he pops up in, you know, the world of magazine journalism, obviously, but Mm -hmm. also, uh, you know, Leftist radical politics, the punk rock movement um, and he just uh, he just seemed like, "How have I never heard of this guy yeah, who totally. has had kind of an outsized influence you know in several categories you know for one thing he was he was a uh, first amendment warrior. He uh, battled for press credentials mm. that were later used in um, the CNN versus Trump. Case when Jim Acosta was, uh, uh, was kicked out of, of press access uh, for the White House. And, uh, you know, he, he kind of blazed a trail for underground reporters um, being you know, welcomed into the mainstream.
1: Yeah, I mean, because he starts out, I mean, one thing that, that your book makes pretty clear, and I mean, you can't kind of escape noticing, is this guy really does kind of come out of nowhere. With an assumed name, and is able to within like a year of his sort of appearance on the scene, he's running something called the Underground Press Syndicate. Yeah, um, pretty much single-handedly, and that is, it was an organization that existed prior to his arrival, but he like kind of seemed like kind of nobody wanted to, to do it anymore, and he kind of just like took the reins. And you know, I used to go to the shop in uh, the Tenderloin in San Francisco called the Magazine. And it was mostly – it was run by five uh, pretty much identical guys that all kind of had – were bald with beards uh, and kind of the same height. It was sort of like a, a gnome situation. Um, and it was mostly um, like male erotica, like old photographs and stuff like that, and then some like magazines. But in the back, there was a massive collection of like underground papers from the nineteen sixties. And wow. so I used to go buy like old copies of the Berkeley Barb. Um, they had I got I think a copy of Slash Magazine, so that's much later in the seventies. Um, but uh, really, it was cool. And I would you know kind of look through these underground papers. They were pretty cheap. I'd buy them. Um, and I think something that sort of People might know about some of the big ones like the Berkeley Barb. I think that's kind of probably the most famous one. Yeah. And those were kind of the precursor to like the alt weeklies that we, well, now have mostly disappeared. But, you know, that you, if you are of a certain age, meaning probably above 22, you remember from whatever town you're from. Um, And, you know, it was a, they had a massive presence back then. I mean, I know in the book, I think Tom is quoted as saying that there's like six million readers uh, across America of these things. and I mean, it's 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 notable that like the thing that he heads for immediately, and this is whether he's a cop or not a cop. It's just notable that the thing he heads for immediately is like, I want to be in charge of essentially like the, a, the wire service for the underground newspapers.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I found out pretty early um, in my research that I, I think really led me down a rabbit hole was... He kind of came out of nowhere, and on August 15th, 1967, he contacted the East Village Other, which was the East Village yeah. underground newspaper, and um, he said, look, I want to help in any way I can. Um, you know, he'd previously been a business major in college and had uh, worked for the you know, the Air Guard in Arizona.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: He'd, he'd uh, had a small military service. Um, and then suddenly he attaches himself to this this counterculture movement. Um, it turns out that August 15th, 1967 is also the same day that the CIA's chaos program started. Um, and so I thought, oh my God, like like it's too, it's too perfect. Yeah. For um, our
2: listeners who don't know, can you explain really oh, quick sure. what just a kind of head uh, you know general yeah. idea of what the chaos what program What is was. MH. Chaos,
3: chaos, <laughs> chaos is is pretty much the CIA equivalent of COINTELPRO so you know infiltrating the uh the left uh the civil rights movement um you know various um non down the middle mainstream parts of america that you know need to be cleaned up or wiped out um and uh you know foresaw made all of the people who were kind of in his um, his orbit read a book called Agents of Chaos, mm-hmm. um, a science fiction uh, novel, a, kind of a pulpy science fiction novel about uh, the establishment and then the counter-establishment and then this third force that comes in and shakes everything up. Mm. So um, I thought this guy was obviously an agent of the chaos, chaos program. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Could it be any more clear? Um, I, you know, I, I, It's not maybe the smoking gun that I... That I hoped it would be or thought it might be um but it's it's one of many sort of circumstantial things that make your eyes
1: yeah I pop mean, out a little in, in in the book um there are several quotes kind of throughout his basically decade long career from people that were friends with him um that are either uh them reporting to him that like oh you know in letters like hey like we're chill, but like a lot of my friends think you're in the CIA, or like right. other people giving you quotes later. But basically, being like the guy was a fucking agent, and that seems to be something that like is throughout the book, kind of like hangs over. I mean, the book that it's uh, the name, you know. Not I, I'm sure not to insinuate anything, but I was like, that's a very interesting title, right, for the for your book on agents of chaos, because like you know that obviously is you know any sort of student of the '60s would remember that that was a pretty big part of it, uh, you know, the, the MH chaos. Right. Um, And uh, it would seem sort of to somebody who was just to go over this guy's life, it's like, well, there's a lot of really, like he was really getting away with a lot of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a lot of instances throughout the book where he's sort of in these radical scenes and a lot of other people are getting busted. Not that he doesn't get busted himself ever. You know, he does. Mm-hmm. Uh, but a lot of guys are getting busted and Tom's kind of just like getting away scot-free. And you know, there's multiple readings in that of that stuff within the book as well. Like, there's people who are like, "Well, it's just like that's the way it happened this time," or some people being like, "I don't know why he got away," you know. Um, and did you wrestle with that, like, while writing the book? You're like, did you come in with like a preconceived notion? You kind of hinted at that, right? and then like, this guy's probably like, something's up with this guy. And then how did that change as you were writing the book?
3: Yeah, well, it it kind of. Uh, ebbed and flowed a little bit, you know, I would kind of go back and forth thinking like, oh my God, like this person that I just interviewed, like they probably have a tap on my phone. You know, I, I got like four years into it. I, I think I was starting to like get the paranoia of what I was researching was starting to rub off mm. on me, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, not to mention, you know, you're talking to a lot of people who are paranoid themselves. Um, you know, it's only natural that, uh, you start to go a little nutty, but, um, yeah his his uh his arrest record is pretty clean considering what he was up to um and i you know i had access to a lot of fbi files which were really helpful but the fbi files would would reference um for instance uh, a a plot that the secret service was investigating about Forsad's alleged plot to uh assassinate nixon and uh there were no secret service files that were, you know, responsive to searches. Mm -hmm. Um, There were no drug files on Forsad. There were no DEA or Mm. the predecessor BNDD um, files on Forsad. And for someone who was selling a lot of drugs and was, um, you know, just pretty openly advocating uh, drug use, uh, I thought that was strange. But you can't, that doesn't really prove anything either. Um, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to prove that um, someone is not a spook or that they are a spook, yeah. you know, and, and uh, so that can, be, that can be maddening when you're, you're trying to uh, figure out someone's motivations, someone, someone who's, who also, I should say, you know, Fursad really enjoyed kind of playing the heavy and he liked making people wonder who he was. He didn't like having his face photographed mm-hmm. and he would say provocative things to people and uh, he, would, he would claim to be parts of groups that he wasn't a part of, and he would use assumed names for things that he wrote, and his name was never in high times while he was alive. So there was all this mystery that he was cultivating, and you know, meanwhile, there are people saying, this guy's pretty mysterious, and uh, you know, he wasn't doing much to, to kind of assure people yeah. he was cool.
2: It's funny you say that you kind of went through the looking glass a little bit in it when you were writing the book. Like you kind of assumed some of the like, or started feeling some of that kind of paranoia that the people in the book clearly felt. Because I mean, I, I think reading the book, I felt that. Like the the there's so much going on and kind of weaving through different milieus, and everyone throughout the years that the book document just seems crazy fucking paranoid about Everything, and it's not just yeah. from the smoking the weed and all of the like. But and all of the, you know, obviously there's a lot of cops around. But it's like everyone is constantly accusing everyone else of being in bed with the government or having mysterious motivations. Or I, I, I mean, yeah. it just it really comes across as like this really fucking insane time, like really
0: chaotic.
3: Yeah, I I, I love the cover of the book, but oh, sometimes sometimes I. Uh, It's uh, Bill Sienkiewicz, a comics artist that I've loved since I was like ten years old. But sometimes I think, like maybe that two Spider-Man's pointing at each other meme would be like also (laughs) the perfect cover for this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Because yeah, there's there's so much um, there there are so many accusations Mm. going around, and um, you know, it's 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 hard to know like what to trust. And I think that's something that. You know, felt as I was working on it, very relevant to um, a lot of the political situation today. You know, there's there's so yeah. many so many factions of um, people across across the political spectrum that put the snitch jacket on, <laughs> on one another. Um, and so I, I just uh, uh, I, I guess I, I really wanted to to show also how the various government programs that surveilled activists you know that that was not just um it's not so much that that resulted in people going to jail it's that it injected all of this paranoia into the movement which you know uh was was not very helpful to the movement's goals
1: no no, i mean i think that like it's funny how fitting like a name chaos I guess was to the CIA operation, but like yeah. I think that's one of the thing that like I think a lot of people think of like COINTELPRO. Obviously, the two big aspects of it, right, were like political assassinations uh, and infiltration, and infiltration obviously to get people busted or whatever to spy on people. But the what that infiltration and what those assassinations uh, engendered in, is that the word engendered mm-hmm. engendered in, in in activist groups was this just broad sense of paranoia to where like it was this sort of self-perpetuating thing where you actually I mean they did have agents in most of these groups, but mm-hmm. you know, even if there wasn't an agent present, you had this suspicion of everybody around you being a police agent. And that drove a lot, I mean Panthers, it drove a lot of those guys insane. Mm, right. And the groups that, that Forçade was most closely linked to were groups that we haven't really talked about much on this show, which were the Yippies and their sort of counterpart, uh, the Zippies. And <laughs> the American
2: uh, Bolshevik Menshevik. Yes. <laughs> uh, and uh, 68.
1: Listeners might know one of the more famous yippies, Abby Hoffman. Uh, he wrote Steal This Book. I remember I, I read that when I was like 13 and was, I gotta be honest with you, not really ger- germane to my life at that point. I just remember the one part they were like, steal a giant wire spool if you need a coffee table in your house. I was like, well, my parents have a.
2: Various once on the podcast called him the famously annoying Abby Hoffman, and it's been stuck in my brain. He's famous for being annoying. It's been stuck in my brain like a tr- like kind of Trumpist, like Trumpian kind of quote, you know, where his like yeah, manner yeah. gets stuck. It's stuck in my craw, and now I can only whenever I see Abby Hoffman or read Abby Hoffman's name, I just read it as the famously annoying Abby. But t- talk to us about that
1: scene, right? Because yeah. Forsad went from like the kind of underground newspaper scene, which was a lot of like you know. All across the country, he was kind of running this press syndicate, and then he sort of makes this move. He starts hanging out with some more of the New York crowd, which is yeah. like Abby Hoffman, you know, Jay Rubin, and 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 these guys. What is up with that? Like, what were the yeah. fucking yippies? What were all these kind of like New York psycho groups?
3: <laughs> yeah. So, so the yippies were were basically, I think I think their main objective was to kind of merge the counterculture and the political left. Yeah. Which. For a while, we're, you know, we're, we're pretty separate, you know, there Mm -hmm. were, um, you know, the, the, like students for a democratic society crowd was, was often just like kind of clean cut um, sometimes, you know, uh, going along with kind of these Marxist ideals. Uh, There was the, you know, the clean for Gene Eugene McCarthy fans. Um, And then there were the dirty hippies who were into rock music and doing drugs. And that's kind of like how, those were the stereotypes. And the, and the yippies basically wanted to embrace the counterculture stuff and use that as kind of a vehicle to sell the political stuff. And they did that through a lot of uh, kind of high profile pranks, you know, they, mm-hmm. you know, threw money out on the stock exchange floor and watched, you know, people fight for it, things like that. Um, and, you know, they were, they became like household names, especially after the Chicago 7 mm-hmm. uh, trial, which, you know, there's a terrible Aaron Sorkin. Oh, yes. Uh, Aaron movie.
1: Sorkin made a movie about that. He did? and For Netflix, I think. Oh, shit. I, I totally think it came this? out. My, my Was brain. This a COVID my, thing? I might be doing a Hassan Minaj emotional truth right now, but I think it came out during. Uh, October 20, or not October, excuse me, like uh, summer of 2020, like during the BLM stuff. Oh, but I might, my brain might just be making that backed up.
3: I, I try not to talk trash about things, but it was, it was pretty terrible.
1: I think and, Sorkin's uh, not listening. You're good. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
3: you're good. <laughs> it's, uh, it was uh, Sasha Baron Cohen as uh, Abby Hoffman <laughs> <Not> and <fan. laughs> that uh, succession method actor guy as, uh, oh, as Jerry Oh, that was a freak. Yeah.
1: He was Jerry Rubin? Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, that makes sense. I can see yeah, that. I can see that. I uh, hate Jerry Rubin. I yeah. will talk shit. I know I maybe you don't <laughs> want, you know, you know some of these people. Uh, Jerry Rubin has been I haven't liked Jerry Rubin since I found out who he was a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> but so these yeah. guys were like these guys were were pr- they weren't the merry pranksters although they were new some of them. Uh, yeah. but they were pranksters. You know, yeah. like they were they were sort of like theater
2: theater kids. Theater that, yeah, I mean... Surrealist theater kids. Surrealist theater kids, yeah. <laughs> Inspired, at least, by... Um, and that, that seems to be a theme throughout the book,
1: too, is that, like, you know, in a lot of the... Hi- like, if you read, like, Revolution's End or, like, any of these sort of, like, histories of, like, the the radical left in yeah. the 1960s, it really, like, a lot of the countercultural movement stuff is kind of left out of it. Because, yeah. like, they're like, we're not, like, the hippies. Like, we're not just, like... That was sort of... We're more Marxist. That was more, like, anarchic. Yeah. Uh, and there is that that a lot of this in your book is like actually these people who sort of see themselves as political actors, like you said, trying yeah. to sort of merge both of these two uh, scenes that were kind of existing side by side. Yeah. Uh, but and both are broadly involved in the anti-war movement, but weren't really united. And right. I think a big a big part of um, you know you talk a lot about festivals, about music festivals yeah. in the book, and. Woodstock Nation. And I, I you know, that, that sort of seems to be Woodstock is a big link because you talk about mm-hmm. how some of the underground press, like Woodstock was advertised to the underground press. And the underground press were basically able to secure like a contract to print brochures or whatever. Yeah. That didn't seem to fully work out. Um, but I think a lot of the guys, a lot of sort of the political actors you're talking about, Abby Hoffman, Jay Rubin, yeah. et al., uh, sort of viewed Woodstock like, oh my God, we had all these young people together. Like, we right. got to spread this across. This is like a political movement, and they spend the next several years kind of trying to replicate the magic of that.
3: Right. Yeah. First, first, had a good, um, a good name for the. Uh, I, I don't know if it was his, his original name, but he he called the uh, uh, politicos and the pot smokers the fists and the heads. <laughs> um, that's kind of cool. Uh, heads,
1: I know, but fists is pretty.
3: That's yeah. Yeah. And, and so and so, getting those getting those. Two groups on the same page was like this, this big objective and, um, and, and using like, you know, rock and roll, man, mm-hmm. that was like how they were going to do it. And they saw, I think, uh, you know, the cultural moment of Woodstock as, you know, this, this way that they could tap into um, activism. And of, co- of course, like, you know, Abbie Hoffman famously g- got up and tried to give a political speech at Woodstock and mm-hmm. Pete Townsend smashed him with his guitar. Yep. Um, uh, you know, uh, yeah. it but didn't go so well. it was
2: so, so well.
3: annoying, maybe it would have ended up differently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, the, the, and so the, the thing is that Forsad was actually involved in the editing of that book, St- Steal This Book. He, he contributed some writing to it and he had this falling out with Abbie Hoffman. And yes. that's kind of what kicked off the zippies. So, Forsad decides that Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin are sellouts and that they are not pure enough.
1: Hip capitalists.
3: Hip capitalists. Well, that
1: seems to be something
2: that Jerry Rubin called Forsad, but I'm sure that that was.
3: Uh, everybody Again, Spider-Man play. pointing me. They're all right. yeah, hip exactly. capitalists. Right.
2: Well, hip, I don't know, but definitely. Well, at the time. <laughs> uh, Everyone's an operator.
3: Abby Abby Hoffman, Jerry Rubin, and Ed Sanders got like $33,000 to write a book about the 72 election presidential election campaign. Mm-hmm. And they called it Vote. And Forsad really seized on this as like, you know, just evidence of how dirty they were. Mm. And that they were, you know, they were sitting up in their nice hotel room at the conventions, and they weren't down in the streets with the people. And so the Zippies were born to kind of hold... Uh, the feet of the yippies to the fire and this became kind of a big clash in the summer yeah. of 72 that got a lot of uh, a lot of media attention that uh, you know has sort of you know faded in into the background but if you go back to the newspapers there was like a lot of coverage of, <laughs> of the, uh, hip- the, zippies the zippies th- yeah exactly well with
2: names like those hard
1: <laughs> well, not to of course about them. I will say this I mean Tune on, I would say, our sort of unofficial fourth member would be the classic Zippy, the Pinhead. Mm, mm-hmm. And, of course, his faithful friend, the Doggy diner head. Sure. Um, who's a massive influence on me throughout my life. Um, you know, you mentioned 72. This is the Miami. It was the, was that the DNC that took place? It was in Miami. It was happening in
3: both because the the DNC and the RNC yeah. were held in Miami that oh, year. Oh,
2: yeah. So sick, Miami. They don't do that anymore. Uh, I they can't remember. They don't have them in the same city anymore. I, I,
1: there's, there's one passage from the book which is just astounding. There's a, there's, a, there's a lot of these kind of things in the book, but this was, I think, stood out to me more than the other ones. Uh, and I think it's emblematic of a lot of the sort of the themes in the book is at one point uh, there's, you're, you're kind of covering a, or you're, you're mentioning this Vietnam veteran against, against the war meeting in Miami. Right. And that facade was, was, looks like he was likely at. Oh, or there at least what a representative from the Zippy is at, uh, and uh, at this meeting, a member of the Vietnam Veterans Against the War kind of gets up and says, "We're going to start. The, like, we're going to have this militant organization. We're going to like have these. We're going to make these makeshift weapons to get the cops off of the horses and like kind of riles everyone up into this violent mood. And mm-hmm. it's like we're going to do all these violent things. And then afterwards, immediately confesses to other members of the organization that he works for the Federal Bureau of <laughs> Investigation. He's an FBI agent. Right. Uh, and then. Those guys are like, all good, we'll just use him against the FBI. <laughs> they go down to meet with this Cuban guy to kind of make peace so that the Cubans' exiles don't come and beat the shit out of them. Right. And then the Cuban guy ends up being like, all good, I can't guarantee anything about the, Cub- anything about the Cubans. Uh, I can sell you guys some guns, though, and they're like, absolutely, <laughs> Cuban guy also working for the FBI, and these guys get entrapped in this big thing, and and and. That to me, I mean, that is a, a the, the, these these sort of like semi-naive guys who want to be these sort of like you know political actors, but aren't really like they think that they can use the system against itself. Yeah, and that that happens so many times within the book. I mean, not only with sort of the hip capitalists who were like using or not the hip capitalists, the yippies and the zippies, although maybe the shoe fits, uh, <laughs> think that they can use this media attention against the media. Uh, or the you know the the I think it's the medicine ball caravan yeah um, sort of the 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 traveling Woodstock that Forsad kind of comes into as like a uh, as as a loyal opposition member and right. like just throughout and even with high times uh, in in a sense like absolutely all of these guys yes. are just like they think that they can use they they see that they're being used by an outside force and they're like maybe I can use this outside force against itself
3: right and. Right. The it tools of the to be, master, right? exactly, yes, and totally. it seems to be
1: a legacy of of of, of failure.
3: Yeah, yeah, and it's. It, I think you know, capitalism is one of the big uh, big forces that they think that you know they can employ to achieve their ends, and um, you know, it turns out that like capitalism is pretty hard to beat at its own game. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the things that really became a uh, conflict in Forsad's life was when High Times became this big success, you know, he seems to wrestle with, uh, you know, have I, have I sold out, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he tried to, like, shut down the magazine a few times. He mm-hmm. fired the whole staff, and then he would hire them back. Yeah. Um, but it was, it was this constant, um, this, yeah, this dichotomy between uh, making a lot of money and then putting that money into the movement um, or just like staying true and staying pure, and uh, you know, many people have never figured this figured this out. I don't know if anyone has.
1: It's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. No, he was. He, it's the effect of altruism <laughs> gambit. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about high times because that's that's a that's a another little theme that runs through the book is fucking weed. <laughs> and these guys were dopers. Uh, yeah. These guys were smoking pot, marijuana, and getting very high. Uh, and that seems to be, like, that's a funny thing also, sort of the split between the counterculture and, like, the politicos or whatever, the, right. the fists and the heads, Yeah. Uh, is that the fists were like, eh, maybe you shouldn't really be smoking pot so much, like, you know, we got to, like, talk to working-class people or whatever, and, like, you know, try to maybe get jobs in factories and stuff like that. Where a lot of the heads were like, we got to smoke as much fucking weed as possible. <laughs> everybody smokes weed. And their whole thing was, and it, this is – I knew this, yeah. but it's spelled out several times in the book with direct quotes from people like, listen, if everybody smokes weed, they will, like, be more, like, uh, down. Their minds will be more open yeah. to, like, alternative ways of living. Right. Uh, which I will say now, eh, with full si- hindsight, 2023 history – did not turn out to be the case. I think yeah. more people smoke weed than ever in history and things are dog shit. Um, right. <laughs> but uh, that, they're, they're, uh, the, the theme of like marijuana legalization also runs mm-hmm. through this as well. And a lot of people getting busted for for pot. And that is sort of like the one, I guess, like kind of semi-victory that kind of comes out, not directly from these guys, but from that arc is that like, I guess weed's legal in New York kind of now.
3: Right, right. I mean, I do think that there's something to be said for, you know, Marijuana making people question systems, you know, um, whether or not that follows through that they do anything about it. I, and, I, and I also think that smoking weed does not necessarily uh, help with your paranoia. It also does not help give you a sense of like what's real and what's the truth. Interesting. Vax. And it, it, it <laughs> might even like lead to a lot of conspiracy theories mm. that don't, don't help out a lot. <laughs> Um, but, it, you know, I think it, it I understand where, where that impulse comes from, yeah. that, like, you start you start questioning things, and, you know, that's good to an extent, but if you're, if you're always questioning everything, then you're in trouble.
2: But it's funny, you know, you, to keep bringing up the Spider-Man meme thing, I mean, to see the kind of, like, leveling this criticism, I mean, I think rightly, at the yippies for trying to kind of button up and um subsume the movement into something mm-hmm. something else. They're sort of doing the same thing where they're like, well, what if we just made like smoking weed political? <laughs> you know what I mean? Or right. like, what if all the political stuff was actually just about smoking weed? Like kind of doing it both ways. Yeah. And it didn't really end up going anywhere. But it does seem like Forsad, like we said, kind of had a bunch of problems with that too. Yeah. He wasn't totally comfortable with all of it.
3: Yeah. I mean the thing is that there's always going to be some somebody to like rise up and and say like you are not radical enough
2: yeah
1: Um, that's me
3: and that that (laughs) you know that and that purer than thou thing is is a tricky thing to navigate yeah
1: yeah yeah um well weed not only looms large in terms of politics but also in terms of foresades money making because you drop a little bit into the book i mean you wait a little bit to drop this fact but He was moving some what you might call weight uh, (laughs) and was actually a pretty big weed dealer in New York, but also a weed trafficker, like getting it from South America and like getting it flown up in Classico Cessna style, which listeners will know how we feel about planes of that size. Um, But uh, he falls in with this guy. And I have to I have to look at my notes right now because I'm going to mispronounce the guy's name Bernstein.
3: Yeah, uh, in Florida. I you know I was thinking Bernstein, but I actually have no idea. We'll it's kind him. of a Bernstein Bernstein situation. Yeah.
1: Um, <laughs> he also Jeremy Corbin, Bernstein. Bernstein. <laughs> he follows in with this guy Bernstein in in Florida, who is a. Uh, like a realtor or something. It was. I yeah. feel like it's
3: a very Floridian profession. Which is, Fort Lauderdale real estate
1: classic. That's our yeah. number one listener demographic. Actually. Yeah. Um, he falls in with this this guy who also he tries to connect as an investor in various underground papers and stuff. Uh, a Florida underground paper, uh, and this guy is a weird cat. I mean, this is I think your closest link to me of like, there's something going on here because this guy is like in with the DEA and in with the government, but also getting like busted by them.
3: Yeah. Yeah. That's, I, that, the whole Ken Bernstein, uh, epic was something that was really kind of always threatening to kind of pull me right out of the facade narrative. Yeah. I get Um, that. Because he was involved in a lot of there was there was kind of like this circular firing squad with a bunch of like, ex Bay of Pigs guys and mm-hmm. arms dealers, and Can uh, the, the
1: classic of, wait, Florida. Oh, have to gong after Can you say the name of one particular arms dealer who was associated with perhaps the manufacturing and sale of Mac Ten suppressors?
3: Is that uh, Mitchell Werbel III? <laughs>
1: Who has come up, I would say, more than any other name <laughs> in true history in various episodes. In fact, literally the last author, no, author before last that we interviewed, uh, Warbell makes an uh, appearance in his book as well.
3: That, I mean, that guy, another, another character, uh, to put it mildly. Mitch, Mitch Warbell, most famous for uh, the, the Mac-10 silencer. Um, or suppressor. People who are into guns really don't like when you call things uh, no, silencers. No, it's fine.
1: If, you know, people can call whatever they want. <laughs> they don't do. They don't suppress or silence, so it uh, doesn't matter. Right. So, but like Bernstein was 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 bringing in this weed from South America. Yeah. Where Bell was also a weed dealer, which is a, a less focused on part of his, his lifestyle.
2: He kind of dealt everything. He, to be de- honest. he did deal everything.
1: And there's a there's an interesting part of the book where you're talking about how he and where Bell, Bernstein and where Bell. Bernstein's in business with Forsad. Yep. Uh, Bernstein, Tom Forsad's partner in in weed trafficking is also in business with Warbell, but they're both kind of ratting each other to the government who are both investigating them for different things, but are also maybe employing both of them. I mean, definitely employing Warbell, maybe employing Bernstein.
3: Yeah. And then they've got like Watergate figures who are like testifying at their trials, Um, like uh, Bud Crow, I think, Mm -hmm. uh, took the stand. Um, and people who are like tied up in like the JFK assassination conspiracy world, um, yeah, I'm, that was a very impressive uh, close close reading of, <laughs> of what was going on there because it's it's so. I had to diagram this stuff. Yeah, yeah. I was
2: gonna say, did you end up with the red string on the wall, like trying to piece all this shit together?
3: Uh, more than just red string, yeah. yeah. I mean, and just like trying to keep the um, yeah the 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 Alliances that were always shifting, mm-hmm. um, and and you know it got to the point where you know you have different federal agencies like accusing the other federal agencies of of lying. Spider Man, yeah. Spider
2: Man meme again. <laughs> oh my God.
3: Um, but yeah, the, the the Ken Bernstein thing. I the only way I knew about it was I found a letter uh, from Bernstein to Forsad um, in in Forsad's papers, and I mentioned it to this guy Jerry Powers who was a former underground newspaper editor who then became um, like a big uh, Miami Beach uh, kind of art world, big money guy. And he was like, oh, that's what they were doing together. And then he told me these stories about like running into Bernstein and Forsade, uh, acting suspicious.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, it just speaks to the sort of compartmentalization that Fursad had in his life, right? Yeah. Because, and, and you do a good way of, of if this is sort of how it ends up being in the book, is like, you sort of reveal these other aspects of him that he's been doing this whole time throughout, like, as the book goes on, but you're like, actually, he's been selling weed for like this many years, or like, or oh, this is his real name, and et cetera. Right. Uh, which I want to get to in a second, but, um, yeah, I mean, he was making some serious fucking, because one of the things that whenever I read about the 60s, I I'm like. Sorry, does anyone go to work in this world? Like <laughs> everyone's like, oh, I'm flying to the radical the White Panthers convention, yeah. and I'm flying to this convention. It's like, bro, no, don't they you to wait like-
2: to the '80s to get real jobs? Exactly, <laughs> and then well, they all yeah. made
1: fucking bank. All ma- yes, yeah, well, so, Jerry Rubin. Um, but uh, but yeah, so I mean, that seems to be like the real way that Forsad was making some serious cash was 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 selling weed in New York.
3: Yep, yep. He was he was selling weed, and the other thing that he was making money off of. Was selling the microfilming rights to the underground uh, papers, um, which of course kicked up. You know that made a bunch of other people suspicious that he was working with little for the cameras. Government, you're talking about. Yeah, why were yeah. they doing? It? Who would he sell the rights to? Bell and Howell. So it was going. So they were. Uh, you know, micro, microfiche that were going out to libraries, but also various government agencies were subscribing mm. to get all these underground papers on on microfilm, and. Um, so some of the people who actually did the microfilming said to me, like, you know, what could he be but a cop?
1: I know. There's a funny, there's a funny quote in the book where this woman's like, yeah, I did the microfilming. It must have been for the CIA or something. Like, you know, just, yeah, Who else wants microfilms of this yeah. stuff? Um,
3: but I didn't mean to get you off of the weed. Oh.
1: No, no, no. I mean, so but I mean that it's obviously that leads into high times, right? Like cause this guy, this whole thing like all this stuff converges. Like he's making all this money off of weed, he knows all these weed people. Yeah. Uh, you know, normal uh N-O-R-M-L is like which I gotta say, great name for an organization. Yeah. Normal. I mean that's still you, around. I know it is. Yeah. It is yeah. gotta be, but that's gotta be one of the all time greats for normal. I got no one else out of that. Um, can't argue with it. Can't argue with it. Like, all right, fair enough. Says what it is right That's in the name. That's what it is. Um, but uh all of those kind of come together. He starts High Times, and High Times becomes it's funny because I always kind of put High Times as slot it in with Playboy of that era, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um where it's as you know, should, because you I
2: sh- think these these kind of quote unquote revolutions, whether in drugs or in sex or whatever, it's all happening at the same time. And both of these guys are kind of figuring out how to literally put it into print and kind of make money off of it, right? And yeah. Kind of you know take over and direct the the culture of those those you know writing revolutions and right
3: it. these yeah these great like taboo breaking yeah. magazines um, you know that you know hopefully can also make a lot of money for them on the on the side um, in in addition to changing the cultural norms but one one of the one of the challenges that high Times faced in the beginning was that they couldn't get any distributors to pick it up, and so their their way around that was they would Give a lot of the ma- a lot of issues of the magazine to different drug dealers who would then distribute it along with like their bales of weed. So uh, if you you know you bought like a few bricks from somebody, they would pass along like some issues of High Times. Like give this to your customers. So uh, old school marketing tactic. Old school marketing.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah I yeah. mean, one of the crazy Second things like door flyering. <laughs>
1: I when I was reading this book, I was like, because I you know obviously I know about High Times. I actually have a lot of old like. I guess, like, early 80s, late 70s, or no, like, early, mid-80s issues of High Times because there's a lot of, like, uh, Coke uh, freebasing ads like, yeah. for freebasing equipment in them. Um, but I didn't know that High Times also had, like, a trade publication for weed dealers. Yeah. And then, like, they had all these sort of, like, other publications, too, under the High Times umbrella. They were, like, really trying to, like, basically become not, like, a general interest weed magazine, but then also these various trade magazines for the industry as well.
3: right. Right, Dealer Magazine is yeah amazing. So sick, uh, uh, and 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 putting their like you know their skills with glossy photographs of various illegal substances uh, to to good use.
2: Well, they're like the Yippies of weed in a weird way. I mean, it's like you know they were like I I don't know like kind of getting their claws in because they knew they thought that legalization was coming. We're gonna set up and be the kind of like we're gonna run the 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 new market, and kind of like set up shop. At least that's what it always seemed like to me, you know. Yeah. And kind of get in all over the place where they could.
3: Another another thing that they were trying to do with High Times was to make some money that they could then pour back into the um, the struggling alternative newspapers. which you know they had actually changed the name from underground press syndicate to alternative press syndicate by that point, and that's um, a
2: metaphor, by the way. For yeah, the change in the direction of the movement.
3: Right, right, and it was a very like considered like we don't want to be seen as like underground anymore, yeah. And so like we're going to do like a lot of like you know where can you like show up you know for a wine tasting on like a Tuesday night listings all weekly. Yeah, yeah, and so um, that was that was as you know the the draft was ending and, um, the, you know, the Paris peace talks were going on and, uh, the, the economy was starting to stagnate a little bit. Um, there was, there was this real, um, uh, kind of bleak fade out of the anti-war movement and, uh, the, the, the surrounding political movements and, uh, the The underground newspapers uh were were kind of fading along with that, and I think high Times was this almost like last uh last ditch a- attempt to uh to get people you know back involved
1: yeah that I mean that's what it seems like. it's like all like like seventy four it's over, you know what I mean it's so yeah. over for everybody like you're in you're dead, you're in jail, you're a speed freak you know, you're paranoid or you're in college going straight, like you went back to college and you're going straight now and you're about to invest in, in an Apple and be, uh, like the craziest landlord ever in the Bay area in like 10 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, it seems to be like, like a lot of, I mean, there's sort of that, that like thing about like the 60s casualties, you know what I mean? And like, there was a lot of those that littered through the 1970s. But one thing for Fursad, I mean, he became a 60s, 70s, and 70s casualty, I guess, in 78. But one thing that is interesting about Fursad is he does have this sort of through line through this stuff. Like, he was really tapped in mm-hmm. uh, to a lot of I mean, he wasn't at Woodstock, but he was at, you know, all of these other sort of, like, big events, uh, the pop festival uh, the uh, you know, the, the medicine ball caravan or whatever, but then also he's like gets into punk, and like yeah. that seems to be like that. I mean, David Peel's a sort of similar character, right? Yeah. Um, you know, David Peel, musician who was kind of glommed on to the John Lennon, but like you know, he, he started Electro Records, I think. Am I wrong?
3: He started on Electro Records, he
1: started on Electro Records, okay. yeah, but you know, he had. David Peel and the Lowry side were kind of this like Fugs like bands. And then like they also, I think their only really good song is actually a punk song from the from the 70s. Um, I think called like King of Punk or something. Uh but uh, you know, Forsad sort of also like t- makes this journey from like this hippie groovy stuff into like he tours with the Sex Pistols yeah. at some point. And you mentioned at the reading last night that John Lennon, or excuse me not John Lennon, Johnny Rotten, who is Boy, if you want to fright, Google Johnny Rotten modern day picture right now, and you will yelp at your goddamn phone like you just saw a ghost. Uh, Johnny Rotten thought he was a CIA agent.
3: Yeah, wrote about it in his memoir. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I think Forsyth saw what the MC Five were to John Sinclair and the White Panthers. Yeah, as kind of like the you know the house organ, the I mean, not not quite the mascot band, but okay. you know delivering the message, um, you know, getting it out to the people. Um, and I think Forsad saw David Peel maybe as being someone who could do that for him. And so he he dragged uh, David Peel out on the medicine ball caravan and they sort of, like, you know, heckled people with their music. Um, and I think the appeal of the Sex Pistols was similar. I think, I think Forsad saw the Sex Pistols... Um, as this great contrarian force, you know, maybe even more than any interest he had in the music, it just it upset people. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I, I often think of Forsad um, and that Marx Brothers song, you know, like whatever it is, I'm against it.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah.
3: And, and I think Forsad just loved anything that would, would kind of like rattle people's cages a little bit. Um, yeah. and that's what the, uh, and so he became obsessed with the Sex Pistols and followed them around around on uh their US tour and uh hired uh, a filmmaker to document it and they were constantly getting thrown out of venues by Warner Brothers um and uh yeah there were some some stories about uh you know kind of mixing it up with the Sex Pistols themselves um but uh it 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 wasn't good. they weren't going to become Forsad's MC5.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you like at one point, they, even Warner Brothers security are like, you're a CIA agent
3: to yeah. Forsyth. Yeah, which
1: is if you're getting called CIA by the security guard, it's time to leave the phone. <laughs> that is that is my advice to you out there.
2: But it's funny because it seems like throughout his life. He, you know, I I know that we were talking before we started recording of just that like Zillig and like, or Gumpian, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Forrest Gumpian, like he is just popping up everywhere. Um, but it seems like it was because he was always kind of chasing the next thing he thought that could like be the thing to wake people up, right? Or like, be th- what's the thing that that is going to be, yeah, you know, this will this will be the next thing that that uh, makes people think differently. It's going to be weed. No, it's going to be punk. No, it's going to be, you know, it's yeah. always just kind of like chasing that. I'm not going to say chasing that high, but say chasing. It, say it, no, say it. But no, if that's what he wasn't. I don't even think it was that so much as just like a kind of like, he embodies that sort of desperation a little bit that I think mm-hmm. a lot of people felt at the end of the 60s yeah. of just like trying to figure out, wait, what just happened, and how do we, like, get it back together really quickly because it's all sort of dissembling into something else throughout the 70s, you know?
3: Right, right. And I think... um uh, for some reason, what you were saying made me think of like social media and people like mm-hmm. trying to get things to catch on desperately. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I wonder, I, like, I wonder how Forsyth would 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 fare in in these days. Um, oh, he'd
2: be totally fucking insane. The internet would have made him schizophrenic. Absolutely.
3: Uh, I, I mean, in a, in a sense, the internet is kind of like an extension of the underground press syndicate because mm-hmm. it's it's um, you know this. Um, this centralized um but di- diffuse uh communication system. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: lots of naked girls and half-baked political opinions.
3: <laughs> That's right. The legacy, the true legacy.
1: Yeah.
2: And early IRC stuff is very like UPS coded. In yes.
1: Yeah, I would say too, like early internet stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
3: I think um you know, Forsada also he had a, a business school background and he yeah. idolized JP Morgan and Howard Hughes when he was growing also, up. Also, that's
2: got to be a red flag for anyone who's like, let's let's Align ourselves politically.
3: Uh, right. <laughs> Change, right. Changing, he was a. Uh, he was a. He's uh, seen a big, the
1: thousand
2: guys changing their hinge profile
3: right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he was a big Ayn Rand uh, disciple. Another one. That's for the class.
2: Yeah. yeah. Who are your heroes? Ayn Rand and JP Morgan. It's you know, like, what's his name? John
1: Waters has that quote If someone has doesn't have books at their house, don't fuck them or whatever, which bullshit. Yeah. Also, uh, which books? Which books? And it's like, I'm sorry. I'm already here. Yeah. Uh, but. I, people go to my house and like, oh, he has books. I can have sex with him. And, yeah, we're talking Fountainhead. Mm. We're talking Atlas Shrugged. We're talking The God That Failed. And, yeah, I have every copy of them. It's just mountains and mountains of them. <laughs> Only the, those.
3: Oh. Sorry, I got us off track. <laughs> no, no. I I, I was just going to say I, I think in terms of him trying to always like chase the next big, big yeah. thing, I think that was his like his business school instincts and yeah, his sure. marketing background. And I think that he – you know, I – tend to think that he probably really did have these ideals that um, have been questioned, um, but I, I think he really did believe in a lot of the stuff that he was he was preaching, um, but I think his way of of trying to um, uh, I, uh, to, 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 to make those thing, things manifest was uh, was was through business tools
2: but I think that's what makes um I think that's what makes people really uncomfortable with trying to wrestle with this stuff is that they want him, and I don't know if you felt this way going into the book, but it's like they want him or people like him to be cynical operators because then it's a lot easier to deal with the kind of contradiction there of like someone who does have these sort of aspirational politics but also has these instincts to sort of try to chase them or, or distribute them or rile people up through these sort of like business practices or market. I mean, we see all this this yeah. all the time these kind of like we all seem to be children of i don't know like the marketing revolution <laughs> that yeah. happened in like the 80s and 90s and now even you see kids and uh, kids younger than us what they're steeped in makes me kind of want to blow my brains out for sad style but mm-hmm. like i mean spoiler alert but uh You know, I think it makes people—it's almost easier to think someone like Forsad was—and maybe he was, I don't know—was a, um, you know, double agent trying to—you know, an agent of chaos trying to sow mistrust and paranoia among the movement and make things, you know, difficult for everyone, um, rather than maybe some of those instincts coming from the same place that a lot of the politics are coming from as well. And kind Mm -hmm. of trying to wrestle with that contradiction— I think that's one of the legacies of trying to deal with the new left or what was the new left is people not wanting to have that fucking conversation.
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he was a, he was a, he was a, a complicated personality, not just his persona, but his, you know, he, he was bipolar and, uh, there was a lot that was not consistent about his, his behavior and, you know, possibly also his motivations and his, certainly his politics shifted at times. Um, you know another like kind of Rorschach blot that you can say is that because he, you know, he he didn't mean any of it, or mm. or did he did he actually change a lot? Yeah. Um, and I I think um, I think he was cynical at times, but sure. I but I don't think that um, he was you know kind of like the angel of death that <laughs> that some people see him as.
1: Yeah, I mean that's. Well, I mean, that, that that's, that's you know, you, you mentioned Rorschach there, and it does seem like the 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 book features quotes from people who just have these wildly different opinions. And some of them like, you were like, he changed my life, you know, sort of was like, you taught me to believe in myself, essentially, and like, great guy. And then other people were like, fucking, you know, hip capitalist CIA, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and these two opinions are held by people who might have been in very similar situations with the same guy and you know he does move from like different sort of political i mean not that the political scene itself changed very much during his time right. in it i mean it was it's really i, I one cannot stress enough how over the period of like 67 to, to 72 74 especially like things just like the landscape changed radically mm. um, but i think that the 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 thing that the book sort of reveals, I don't, I don't want to say halfway through, but like a third of the way through maybe, is that, um, I mean, it's there, essentially his actual background. You know, you mentioned the business school, um, mm-hmm. but, you know, where he actually kept, and he, there's a very entertaining part sort of about the, the his, like, you know, ancestry and, uh, and some troublemakers in his lineage or his, right. his family tree. Um, but then also, you include his um, psychological report from the Air, Air Guard. Uh, right, right. And I think they diagnosed him as paranoid schizophrenic. Yeah. Um, Which at the time I was like, "Well, is that just him trying to like do a like I'm crazy, don't somebody Vietnam kind of thing?" Because my ass would be doing that. Right. Classic tactic. Classic tactic. That or get a boner during induction, like Iggy Pop. Um, But uh, is like, was what did you make of that when you saw the the psychological report?
3: Yeah, my interpretation of that changed, like. Over the <laughs> over the time I was working on it, I all, like I definitely I was like, oh, clearly he faked this to get you know out of the military. But then also the more I knew about his real life, you know, struggles that were not you know going to get him, uh, you know, that were not going to achieve anything for him, mm-hmm. you know, um, his his kind of crippling depressions and his really crazy outbursts um that that um that profile started to really kind of fit in with that
1: yeah there's another part of that section too that was i was has a has a big bombshell and i don't know if bombshell is the right word but a a sort of shocking passage uh you know his real name is was, was gary goodson
3: right Goodson. yeah
1: Good, what a, a curse to be saddled with a name goodson um <laughs> <laughs> but uh he A hitchhiker—excuse me, rather, a dog was found with a severed arm in its mouth, and that was sort of traced back to the body of a hitchhiker uh, that was found with his ID in the pocket, which is,
2: first of all— With Gary Goodson's ID.
1: With Gary Goodson's ID, a.k.a. Thomas Forsad's ID. Right. Uh, What the fuck do you make of that?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I— Did he smoke this dude? I, I don't think so. I, I had uh, – there was an old interview transcript with his mother, and, and she related this story about the police showing up and that someone – a body had been found with, with uh, Tom Fassad's identification. And this is
1: prior to him being a, like, known figure.
3: Right. This is in 69. This, this is right before he moves from Phoenix gotcha. to New York.
1: So he's got a little bit of a, a name, but not –
3: Right, right. And, you know, it's an interesting story, uh, but, like, I'm not sure if this is a tall tale. And then I found the newspaper clipping about... Um, <laughs> that, just, that just lined up exactly about the, uh, the, the dog finding this, like, you know... Arm. Arm um, with someone's identification. They don't say what the identification is in the story. And I tried really hard to, you know, try to dig up... You know, there were no follow-up articles um, in the newspaper, and I couldn't, I couldn't track down any police records about this. Um, so, you know, maybe that's um, – maybe we can you – know, do you guys ha- have, like, a team of, like, sleuth listeners? Uh, like <laughs> we the do crime have
1: some very podcasts? paranoid listeners with a yeah. quite a lot of time on their hands.
2: And they're all placed in the police department. Yeah, that's true. Most <laughs> yeah. of our listeners do
1: – it does mostly police officers, but yeah. on their off hours. <laughs>
3: But I would, I would love. That's that's one thing I would love to like get to the bottom of that. I just, I just couldn't, and so it just kind of, just kind of hangs there.
2: Adds to the mystery of this guy.
1: So the book, which, by the way, me and Liz have both read it. Fantastic book. I'm a big fan of, of, of history books in general and especially history books about subjects that many of which are represented in this. I think a lot of our listeners will be fans of this book as well. Um, what would you say, though, are, like, the themes running through it, right? Like, we sort of touched on, like, the hip capitalism stuff and the paranoia stuff. Like, what would you see, like, while you were writing this book and after you finished it, like, what do you think of as, like, the through lines through this book from the beginning? And, you know, we we actually didn't really spend any time on this, but Tom Forsyth did commit suicide in 1978. Right. Um, I know that there's some theories that he was killed, but it looks pretty clearly like suicide. Yeah. Um. What do you think are the themes f- like that start sort of the, from the beginning not even of his career but from his life that 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 sort of arc to the end like what do you see there represented
3: Yeah I I, I really think um in some ways it's a, it's kind of a cautionary tale um about maybe mistakes that um <laughs> that the left makes over and over again mm-hmm. um I I don't want to you know discount him as having had um, a good, a good impact in his, in his life. Um, but I, th- I think that some of the, um, the political provoc, provocations, um, uh, you know, maybe just didn't, didn't really go anywhere. Um, I think, um, you know, I, 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 think I wanted to get down kind of like the story of what happened to the the '60s, what what yeah. what connected the '60s to the '80s, which is usually a story that's told as um, you know Altamont and then Watergate yeah. and then gas lines and hostages in Iran. And I yeah. thought, um,
2: and then I, everyone just skips into Reagan. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah. there's a little bit of the story missing.
3: And and you know, without sounding um, too much like delusions of grandeur, I like I kind of felt like. The story of like how things got there for like a certain section of the, like the baby boomer generation yeah. is never is never really told. Mm. Um, you know, and there's I mean, of course, there's a lot about commodification and capitalism and its its impact on the yippie to yuppie you know yeah, pipeline right. does get talked about, but I don't think it ever. I I don't think I think it's often just kind of like. Uh, 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 it's it's just like a bumper sticker saying I don't yeah. I, I think I think that there are reasons that 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 shift happened um, yeah. yeah that I that I think are kind of important to get at.
2: Forsyth's such a good character. I mean, I hate saying that about a person who was a real person, but a, a great figure, I'll say um, to kind of trace that and and complicate that bumper sticker, like you're saying, you know, because he ultimately like couldn't make it <laughs> into the '80s and into the kind of like. You know, that transition into Yuppie Dumb. Right. For as complicated as, you know, however he felt his own, um, you know, business practices or f- political practices or whatever, he, however he thought of himself, you know, yeah. he couldn't do that. And so his sort of like, you know, tracing or tra- attempting to trace this like really wily figure, <laughs> I mean, he's just a really, I, I, Hate just repeating the title of the book, but he's like so fucking chaotic this dude that's yeah. a a, and,
3: a book author's dream, oh, just, yeah, just that's keep repeating true. the title, yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> right. We're all adwords now, no, but it's true, like he really is just like a crazy chaotic figure who is all over the place and really emblematic, like you're saying of this, yeah i I again, not to repeat myself, but this like dissembling of. The '60s into whatever it became, into the '80s, you know, and all of these people trying to figure out, like, well, now what the fuck do we do, you know?
3: Yeah, yeah, and I, I think, um, you know, I, you, you know, your your hatred of Jerry Rubin noted, yeah, but but I think, um, I, I, I think, I think, you know, people, are, I think, can be really. Um, uh, kind of hard on the baby am I, am I actually saying this can be really hard on like the baby boomers for like the it's you know, okay I think that too. the arc of like, yeah. you, know, no like, you, know, like mm-hmm. you know baby protest to like you know like Jan Wenner's you know empire yeah,
1: yeah.
3: Um, but I think you know there was there was not really a road map you know yeah. and um, and after uh, after things really got weird in like you know the the early to mid 70s mm. um, people struggled to figure out where to go.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the dissolution of the draft alone, I think, was suddenly like, well, what do we, how do we, everything had kind of been piled into that, you know? And then suddenly it was like, oh, that's over now? Okay, well. Uh, uh, To speak
1: of bugbears, one that has not been brought up on this show in a while but used to be brought up regularly is that my number one political position Bring back the motherfucking draft. Everything falls into place after that. <laughs> bring the draft back. All these groups are like, well, how come there's not a big anti-war movie? How come there's a-? It's because no one cares if there's not a draft. No one's going to give a fuck well, there's if there's
2: mistakes. not
1: a draft. Yeah. Uh, well, there just needs to be a draft. we got to put it back in. See what happens. Act too old.
2: But I think also people were not prepared. I mean, now we're going to go into my weird apology, apology tour for the baby boomers. I'm with you. <laughs> But I think – it's not an apology as much as, like, a sensitivity, I guess, is that I just – I don't think anyone was prepared for the way the state cracked down yeah. and how they did. Yeah. And I think, like, it's funny. We were we were talking about them being, like, these kind of, like, activists being sort of theater kids a little bit. Like, I was thinking about that earlier when I was thinking about the SLA and, like, kind of, you know, what we know now about the SLA, right? Yeah. And, you know, everyone at home watching that raid live on TV when they went to L.A., you know – um, and they down. didn't yeah. find Patty Hearst but it was like huge fucking shootout two hours live TV or whatever and like that being its own kind of theater performance by the state right mm-hmm. because they're they're sort of like acting on both sides to kind of show in a kind of like I don't know like mousetrap for my Hamlet heads out there like way of of like this is what we'll do this is what we can do like and, and that that kind of um really pushing that paranoia into everyone as well, yeah. right? And that being its own kind of performance on live TV of, of you know, this is, this is what we can do and this is what we will do. And, and it just fucking breaking people's brains.
3: Yeah. Yeah, and I, th- I think um, there's, there's not a lot that's written about sort of, you know, there are the people who stayed political and they generally kind of, you know, organized on local levels mm-hmm. and joined city councils and sure. um, We're the taught Club. school. Or the Sierra Club, <laughs> um, um, but uh, but there was there was just really nothing yeah. national,
1: yeah. Uh, yeah, going on hard. that
3: replaced the anti-war movement.
1: Yeah, none of those groups. I mean, not not a single. I mean, uh, Progressive Labor Party put out a couple LPs in the seventies. <laughs> uh, they did. Um, yeah, PLP. PLP. What uh, I, I want to I actually want to end on this. Um, what were some threads from this? that are like the mo that you weren't able to tie up or like that you'll like one of those some of those things that are just like you'll ne- no no one will ever know the answer but like what were some of the things that you, like you either came across or writing the book maybe didn't even include it in the book or did include it in the book that you're just like what the fuck was that like basically unsolved mysteries of the Tom Forsad saga or even just that general scene
3: yeah i think i could have i could have really kept going on that Ken Bernstein mm-hmm. tangent for a, a while longer. Um, I think... Um, you can this, sort of this, tell
1: you wanted to in the book.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the this, this smuggling stuff is is also just like, that's another thing that has not been really um, documented that well. Um, and so there's, there's like a whole, yeah, that could be like a whole world, um, a, whole, a whole rabbit hole that, you know, I'm not sure I want to... Go into, but um uh that's yeah, that's that's where the other big mysteries.
1: I have this book called Smugglers from the I think from the mid-70s, uh, that's like written by a purported smuggler. It feels a little like high timesy, like maybe someone yeah. who kind of knows what they're talking about, gussing up their knowledge mm. with some emotional truths. Um <laughs> but uh it, it's like one of the big things I remember. There's a big section about smuggling watches. Uh, But one of the things that they talk about is like this really complicated method of like unscrewing a part of the bathroom in the airplane and hiding stuff in there. And then having someone get that exact plane somewhere else, like to evade customs, like an international flight, you unscrew part of it and then find out if that international flight is now going on a domestic run and then have someone get the next flight that's going to be on. But I'm like, that's so risky for some, you know what I mean? Like that's just, anyways, yeah, smuggling is... My ass would just be like, "Uh, I have some weed on me. (laughs) I know a guy who used to fly from – you might be listening to this actually. used to fly from New York to San Francisco with like 200 fucking stamp bags of China white in his underwear. And I'm like –
2: How? I don't know. I was just at the airport and there's like – they have dogs everywhere. This
1: was like 2010. But there were still dogs, but I don't know. Wow. The, I, people tell me they're not looking for drugs, but I never believe Do you think that. there's the bomb sniffing they're like dogs? It's just bomb I sniffing I couldn't stuff. tell.
2: It was September 11th, so. Um, but I'm like, dude, if you're going to do September 11th, you're going to do it the same day. You flew on September 11th? But you're not going to do, like, another September do. 11th on September 11th. That's the best day to fly. You're going to, like, you want your own day. You want, your, you want it like, another one. Yeah. You can't be, like, the second September 11th. There's, like, eight September. We've covered this in the show. There's, like, ten September 11 But I'm saying if you're going to do A the plain same thing, thing. Yeah, you're right. You can't. That'd you can't be just be, like, the do-over. Copycat. Yeah, we don't like that. Happy anyway, this is what I was day. thinking about. Thank you speaking.
1: so much for joining us. I got to tell you, once again, True and On listeners, you will like this book. It is a is a yeah, fan, yeah it's a fantastic book. Crazy researched. see so <laughs> yeah. like do you
2: eight years to do?
3: Oh yeah, we're going to tell people that. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, right? it is you know? yeah. a good thing. Can you imagine if you're like, yeah, it only took me six months? I'd
1: be like, well, maybe. Yeah, wrote it. It's like,
3: well, it's like all I, those. Old, oh, like great. I bled for this.
1: One crazy thing. So, th- talk about Zelig. Yeah. One crazy thing when I was reading the book, this motherfucker Forsad, and somebody else—I can't remember who—we went with. Uh, the, he snuck onto a cruise to watch the liftoff of the Apollo mission. Rex Wiener. Rex Weiner. Uh, that's a name. You got to get a wife as soon as possible and change your last name to hers. Uh, but
3: yeah, also the creator of the Ford Fairlane character Rex.
1: Oh, interesting.
3: Just to bring it all back.
1: Are Freak Brothers involved in any of this?
3: They were published in High Times.
1: There we go. Uh I used to I found a stack of those comic books in my uh my apartment building laundry room when I was 18 and I read every single one. But uh the um he sneaks onto this cruise to watch the Apollo lift-off, and he's like sitting there with Robert Heinlein, of course, the famous polyamorous fascist, but of course I've read every single one of his books.
2: And author. And
1: author, and <laughs> I will say this in his later career, incest advocate. Um and, but also former supporter of Upton Sinclair, his California gubernatorial run. Um, but he's like, I'm like, that's a zealot moment to be like sitting there smoking weed with, and I don't know, if Robert Heinlein was 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 taking it, but he, he, sitting next to Robert Heinlein watching the Apollo liftoff. I mean, that is yeah. yeah, fucking crazy.
3: Right, right. And then I, yeah, I think a bunch of these old science fiction writers were like talking about like uh, their old buddy L. Ron Hubbard, and mm-hmm. you know, some oh, yeah. some some. some kind of uh, cocktail conversation about how Scientology might have, you know, been started. Um, and, and Norman Mailer and Hugh Downs were also like passing the joint around, which I always Yeah, find there's, er- a, there's a, a funny Not Norm- so surprising that Norman Mailer was, but Hugh Downs, uh, CBS News.
1: <laughs> there's a funny there's a funny Norman Mailer being like, all right, chill to Tom Forsyth in the book too. <laughs> Anyways, the book is full of great scenes, uh, weird yeah. scenes, uh, and uh, thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you guys so much.
2: I think a lot of people listening would actually really dig that book. I do too, which yeah. Which we already said it during yeah. the interview, but I want to repeat but. it. If you enjoyed Tom O'Neill's infamous chaos, <laughs> you'd really dig this book. Yeah, it's fantastic. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice little continuation of some of the... Also,
1: a cool... You know what? Something I want to talk about. Something that you want to talk about real quick, which I know we, we got to get out of here, but... no, oh, no. Book covers. Oh, yeah. We got to talk about book covers real quick because... I like the cover of Agents of Chaos. It's kind of a sure. cool-looking book cover. There's it looks a like a movie like, poster. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. It's a um, little Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Very England. much so, yeah. yeah. You got the kind of old-school film, film guy look, mm-hmm. you know. Very different than a lot of books you see on the shelves these days. It's not green and blue, which is one thing. And it's not just like kind of abstract squiggle art. We don't love that. Or Why do like, they all look the same? Or like, or just two colors? Th- like a book that's yellow. I can't see that Emma Klein book anymore. Who's yeah. Emma Klein? My girl knows here. Ruby, you know Emma. She's not, and she knows. My girl knows. Are these, these females be know you know too. It was like it the, book the book of the summer, according to people who book of the summer. <laughs> but for like a month. For the and then everyone was like, just like every other fucking commodity cycle in this godforsaken country. Everyone was like, oh my God, I love this book. And then immediately, oh my God, I hate this book. I hate this book? You read the whole book and you hate it? Uh, First of all, you can read it in an afternoon. It's a real quick read. On the beach. I read her first. I liked her, the other book better. Daddy. My.
0: (laughs) Did she do the girls? She did the girls about the Manson girls, right? I think Daddy was the. Was it short stories? Um, You liked Daddy though.
2: But that was also a book, one color book, yellow. Here's the thing. What you want,
1: I want two things in a book. Front cover. Your guy, I'm going to, sorry, I want to see what you're working with. Mm-hmm. I want to see what you're rocking with on there. Because that just, the tenor of the book changes, you know what I mean? I feel, I just want to see what you're rocking with. Mm-hmm. On the inside, I want the first 15 pages to be like, what's, like, how are you feeling? You know, like, what's what was going through your mind when you are writing this? Um, and what, what what people you use from your real life as basis for the characters in this, right? And I want you to tell me about them and I want you to tell you Mm -hmm. the stories there. If you didn't use any, I think you're lying.
2: What the fuck are you talking about? I have no idea.
1: (laughs) Uh, I am the author of the Cat Person screenplay, soon to be made into a major motion picture. And I I gotta say it,
2: I was the Cat Person guy. I'm gonna say this. Real quick, here's a take. What? If I was Nicholas Braun, which I'm not, thank God, I would not have done that movie. He's too busy texting. Everyone already sort of turned on him. Mm-hmm. I would say season four, Succession. He hit mass. You know, he it was, the, again, another commodity cycle, right? Another little taste cycle. That it's like now you want to be, everyone already knows that you're out there texting the girls, you're bartending at the places, you're in the mix. We don't want to be texting
1: girls. I will say
2: this. A lot of women know other women who have texted with mm-hmm. with him, mm-hmm. but I'll say this: I don't think I would take on a role where then I'm the the cat person. The cat, cat person. person. I'm sorry. So you want to be cast against type?
1: He as well. method act. <laughs> so I mean, he
2: was method acting
1: for years, and <laughs> it's bad when he doesn't. Yeah, does <laughs> yeah, he was just going into the other Going into yeah, he was going into just the... noted that that some guys can method act, and uh, when other guys do it, no. it's just they're too good
2: at it. <laughs> but that's it was, like, the Aaron Rodgers, like, lodge that he goes into. It's, like, the cat person, like, just, like, you don't know what I'm talking about, do you? Mm. Wow.
1: I'm only dimly aware of who Aaron Rodgers really? is. Football player? Yes. <laughs> okay, then I, I, I'm just fully tore his aware. Achilles. He
2: just got hurt because yeah. of Taylor Swift? No. <laughs> oh. No, he tore his Achilles on, like, the first play because of the curse of the Jets. The Jets. <gasps> yeah. Classic. Great magazine. Uh, oh my God! Come well, on.
1: I don't believe in curses. Actually, that's not true. I fully you fully in do. You I've are been one of the most superstitious. Multiple superst- times. Yeah, I got uh, a lot to say about. I walk under ladders. I don't care. What do you do? Fall on me?
2: Well, that doesn't mean I'll you're not superstitious you. about other things. Yeah, you just true. don't go classico. I don't. Yeah, well,
1: I'm not afraid of ladders. Actually, I'm afraid of ladders. What about heights?
2: Yeah, anyone's not afraid of heights. God wants you to die. You know, my aunt's not afraid of heights.
0: Okay, that's a lie. Like that's she will just shit. get up
2: up there. How tall? As tall as she wants. We have to talk her down. (laughs)
3: What?
2: (laughs) Oh, my God. Um, All right. I have to pee really
1: badly. we got to wrap this up. My name is Liz. My name, of course, is the cat person himself, Brace Belden. We are joined for this outro by Ruby McAllister and— Also
0: known as Doobie McGangister. Doobie (laughs) McGangister,
1: who, of course, is the— Lead actress in the new Cat Person movie, mm-hmm. and then of course yeah. we have the titular cat from the story itself, <laughs> the feline upon which all of those little words were tip tapped out onto that MacBook. Young Chomsky, who is also moonlights as the producer of this podcast, which is called
2: True and On. We'll see you next time. Bye bye. <laughs>
3: Thank
0: you.